Welcome back to the Comeback Podcast. I am delighted today to welcome my guest, Kerry. Kerry is involved in acting and musical theatre and has lived in Asia slash Vietnam for several years and is here today to talk about his experiences as an expert, career over time, and also Kerry OK, which is a one-man a cappella experience using only a looper and vocally layering tracks live on stage, turning themes such as anxiety, social media, and learning to be a hero for others into a heartfelt tour of empowering, catchy songs. I'm really looking forward to this one. Kerry, how are you? Very good, thanks for having me. It's yeah. an honor to be here with the Comeback Kid. The Comeback Kid. <laughs> <laughs> I love that name. The reason I called it Comeback yeah. is because I'm sure you've had it when you start a creative project, the name. You think, what could I call the name? And you overthink. And my uh, name is Connor Kelly, so CK. Yeah. So I thought, come back, CK, boom. That was it. I just was in a coffee shop and thought, come back with CK. Yeah, it works. And also the theme is about coming back from adversity. So I thought, let's just give it a shot. So that's... It's amazing when those things come to your mind and you finally discover it. It's like you just want to scribble it down somewhere and jump for joy. Meanwhile, like it would be like when someone li is listening to music with their headphones on and you can't hear it, but they're kind of singing to it. It's that type of moment. It you is, just want yeah. to jump up and down, but no one would have any idea you just discovered the title of your soon-to-be podcast. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so many like different projects. I've heard that people don't have this grand master plan how they came it with, out with it. They'll just be at a coffee shop and mm. the waiter will say something. I'll go, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Or really, you know, banal reasons. And that's how, because often we can overthink. We were just discussing offer. You can overthink your way into a project thinking, oh, what should the name be? The target audience, the reach. But I now take the approach of done is the new perfect. Just doing something is much better than thinking about it. And I'm sure you've felt the same in certain areas of your own life. Yeah, it's amazing. Whether it be like creative endeavors, I feel like finding, yeah, finding the title is almost like the psychological uh, blockade that we put up for ourselves so we don't get anything done. Yeah. Because I, I completely agree. There's times where I've wanted to maybe start a blog or a podcast or create a theater show and I'll get stuck on the name, but it's almost like I'm choosing to get stuck on the name so I don't have to do the rest of the work. Yeah, I know. It's... It's a tough one. Yeah. yeah. I heard a quote, it was a lot of research is procrastination in disguise. I think ooh, I did watch about 100 videos on how to start a podcast without ever actually doing it. <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? I thought, yeah. right, okay, this is targeting me and it hits and it hurts, but yeah. <laughs> oh, I sympathize. Yeah. yeah. Before we get into your background and your work, Kerry, can you tell me about the Tom Crusader? We, I, we know the story because you just told me off air, but. Why is your handle Tom Crusader? Yeah, it's a good question. So my Instagram handle's at Tom Crusader. I also at one point had a Twitter called at Tom Crusader, uh, Tom Crusader but I, I don't use that anymore. But um, yeah, when I was uh, young, around 15 years old, my mom took me to New York City. And it was just my first time going there and it was our goal to like expose me and my brother to, you know, great live theater maybe some cinema and New York as a whole. So I ended up seeing a play called True West and it starred John C. Riley and Philip Seymour Hoffman. So I was very fortunate to see that. And at the same time, they were in a movie that was in cinemas called Magnolia. So I knew of Tom Cruise before this, but I didn't know like how good of an actor he was. So I ended up going to see this film and I watched Magnolia and I remember Tom Cruise's character was just, he was so out there. Uh, Frank Abagnale, I think was his name. If I get that wrong, oh my gosh, that's terrible. But um, regardless, his performance was fantastic. It blew me away and I became 
literally overnight the biggest Tom Cruise fan. No one was bigger than me. I ended up going home watching Jerry Maguire, Top Gun, A Few Good Men, all of these films before Magnolia, and essentially making him my superhero. Um, and so in university, I ended up going for theater. I actually wanted to become an actor after this New York trip. I went to a, an arts high school and then actually went to theater school for, for uh, yeah, for, I went to UVic for theater. So anyways, first day of school, the teachers ask each person to come up on stage and say what they like want to see in their future, maybe performance wise. So a lot of people were talking about ambitions of being on Broadway, perhaps being a film and TV actor. And I think I just like jokingly said, like I'm going to meet Tom Cruise one day. And I remember someone in the audience said, yeah, well like when? And I said, in the next four years, kind of just joking along, probably people thinking I wanted to like act in a movie with him. But in reality, I just was jokingly trying to say I wanted to meet him. Anyways, this joke of being this self-proclaimed Tom Crusader kind of got out of hand in the sense that I ended up creating a shrine in my apartment, jokingly, but at the same time, somewhat seriously. I bought every single one of his DVDs, which seems kind of pointless now. A lot of money spent on things that are a little bit worthless now, but I, I remember having them on display in chronological order. He had a, a baby with Katie Holmes and we threw a little baby shower for Surrey Cruz. Anytime he had a movie come out, I would host an event called the prom cruise. And so we went to like Mission Impossible 3 and we dressed up and had drinks at my apartment and then we ended up going to see the movie. So all of this, yeah, like I, I, my friends started to realize that I was the, the Tom Crusader and my, I even had a t-shirt made that said, I am a Tom Crusader with a picture of Tom doing like the double fist pump. Right. Now around that time, Tom fell out of favor with the public because he did this War of the Worlds press tour and during that press tour he was kind of rallying against antidepressants and really being pushed on Scientology based issues and so his fan base kind of plummeted because they didn't really agree with what he's saying and and I understand some of that but I in my mind I almost felt like it was a bit of a personal attack because I was young and also because I was the like the diehard fan it was almost like the first prelims towards what some would call cancel culture like mm. they he was on the outs and so my fandom for him became even more passionate and I was driven to support him no matter what. And even if my friend said, well, he's crazy, my default was always, but I love him for his performances. And that was the truth. Um, after university, I ended up becoming a New York City tour guide. So I would take people from Toronto to New York City. And part of that goal of doing that was Tom recently had moved to New York City. So it was a four-day trip, and I would often, during these four-day trips when I had free time as the tour guide, kind of just walk around his neighborhood, trying to increase my odds of perhaps bumping into him. It never got creepy, right? I never was, like, standing outside and, like, yelling at him. I just was kind of, again, like, trying to increase my odds of eventually meeting him. Now, the closest I ever got to meeting Tom wasn't really meeting him, but I did go see a show called All My Sons with his then wife, Katie Holmes, in Broadway, okay? So I saw the show, and I didn't really know this at the time, but after a Broadway show, if you stand out front of the theater, the actors come out. And so my friend Kate and I, we, we stood outside the theater, and, uh, and she came out, and she signed my handbill, and 
I was excited to see her, but it wasn't necessarily that I was excited to see her. I was excited in knowing that the car that she was about to get in, her next stop and the person she would next greet was Tom Cruise. Like I was kind of like, oh, she said goodbye to me in a car, next person, Tom Cruise. And I remember thinking like, that's the moment. Like I'm, I was so close, but that'll be as close as I can get. And I didn't necessarily give up on the dream, but I thought that's a pretty, that's a pretty good win. I got to meet his wife and that's kind of cool. But I didn't necessarily meet him like I had hoped I would when I said I would in, uh, in university and how I planned it in my own mind. But then, December, I might get the year wrong, but I believe it's December 2009. It could be 2008. Tom stars in a movie. The movie is called Valkyrie. The movie was not gonna go well. Why? It's a sympathetic movie towards a Nazi. It's about a Nazi character who tried to assassinate Adolf Hitler. And like the movie Titanic, the ending is already known because it's a historical drama. So Tom really needed to do a press tour to drum up support for this movie where the protagonist is a Nazi. Okay. I'm in Toronto at the time and I see on the news from MTV, from Much Music, which is like a Canadian version of MTV, from other news outlets that Tom is coming to Toronto to do a screening and to promote Valkyrie. And I knew at the time I'd be in Toronto. And so I thought to myself, I know for a fact I am going to meet Tom Cruise when he comes on this press tour. I don't know how, but I will meet Tom Cruise. So the day comes when his press tour is released. It's essentially he's going to go to MTV, which is a bit of central north Toronto. He's then going to head south towards CBC to do an interview with this guy named George Stromalopoulos. He would be the equivalent of um, he'd be the equivalent of like a Joe Rogan esque Canadian. Some people might not like that I say that, but he's kind of like this edgy interviewer, very mm. good at doing what he does. And he was on our national broadcasting uh, station CBC. Tom would then go to Much Music and kind of wrap it up. I knew my best chances that day of meeting him would be at Much Music because when guests go to Much Music, they open up the windows to the public and the celebrities will come outside and kind of like touch the waving hands of the fans. And I thought to myself, it's not ideal to be like one of many screaming fans, but if that's what it takes and I get to say like, I've met Tom, I'm okay with that. So I kind of map out my day. My idea is that I'm going to wear my I am a Tom Crusader shirt. I'm going to get some memorabilia that perhaps he'll sign. And come his first visit at MTV, I'm going to track his path. Not again in a creepy way, but I'm going to try to increase my odds that we'll cross paths. So that day, I wake up and I'm ready to go. And I get a call on my cell phone. And it's from a friend of mine who's an acting agent and her name is Julia. And she has always been a wonderful friend. And she says to me, you're gonna meet Tom Cruise today. And I'm thinking, well, many people are gonna check in because at this point I've like talked to people on Facebook. So I figure she's just like wishing me support, but she's like, no, no, you're gonna meet him. And I was like, what are you talking about? She said, my friend, George, the person I was alluding to before, George Dromalopoulos at CBC, I'm going to 
get you to be his guest, the host of the show. You're going to be his guest and you're going to be in the audience that day to meet Tom Cruise. And as she said that, it was like hard for me to wrap my head around that not only was I going to meet Tom Cruise, but I'm the guest of the host, or at least I'm on the list because of the host who added me to the audience member list, right? And so at that point, I'm standing in the snow with my backpack filled with Tom Cruise paraphernalia magazines. I had a Rain Man poster, my shirt. And I realized like, this is it. So I call all my friends in British Columbia and they're all like, you go, yeah, man, you got this. Like, all right. So I head down to CBC. It's a giant building in the kind of financial district of Toronto. And I enter the building and I ask security. I say, I'm here for the George Stromalopoulos show. I'm gonna be in the audience today for the Tom Cruise interview. And they kind of look at me odd like, okay, it's gonna be over there. So I'm kind of thinking, oh, that's odd. So I walk over towards this area that you're supposed to line up for the crowd. There is zero people there. And my understanding was that there would typically be a whole lineup of people who were going to be in the audience and I would be one of many fans in the audience. But that wasn't the case. It was just me standing there by myself. So at this point I'm thinking, okay, it's not gonna happen. I don't know what's happening. And one of the people who works audience control, she comes down, she's got a little headset on and she says, uh, can I help you? I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm, uh, my name's Carrie. I'm, I'm here for the Tom Cruise interview hour. You know, the show's called The Hour with George Romilopoulos. I'm, I'm here for that. She's like, yeah, no, I'm sorry. There's no uh, public audience today. And I was like, what? She's like, yeah, all of our audience is gonna consist of CBC staff, so I'm really sorry, yeah. And I was like, oh, what? So what that means is, is that all of the staff that work in the building obviously heard Tom Cruise is coming. So they volunteered to be the audience members as anyone would. Like if you're working accounting at CBC and you have the ability to plan your break around an interview with Tom Cruise, like take it. So I thought, oh my gosh. And then I kind of threw out the, I think I might be like George's guest. She's like, uh, okay, just wait here. She goes off up the elevator and I'm standing there alone by myself. She eventually comes back down. When she comes back down, she's like, yeah, it's all good. You're going up. So now I'm like, my, my mind is scrambled because I'm in the elevator and I realize one thing. I'm going to be in an audience full of CBC employees and they might be somewhat of fans, but they're really there just to take advantage of this opportunity, which again, why wouldn't you? I'm the Tom Crusader. I'm the one super fan that's there. I mean, my shirt has a picture of Tom saying, I'm a Tom Crusader. My backpack is bursting with paraphernalia. So I'm going up there and as soon as the elevator doors open, there's all like the CBC staff, they're dressed for work. And here I come in what looks like, I look like I work for Jackass. Like it looks like I'm about to do a prank. Right. right? They're thinking, because again, Tom had the falling out with the public. Yeah, so they're yeah. probably thinking this guy's gonna try to do something crazy to get attention, who knows? So I get there and as soon as I get out there, to the lobby that is, the person working audience control, his name is, his name is Jeff and he's a wonderful person. I ended up becoming friends with him after. He walks directly to me and he's like, okay, 
I need to ask you something. I was like, yeah, what? He's like, is this for real? I was like, what do you mean? He's like, your shirt says I'm a Tom Crusader. Like, is this for real or are you about to try to do something crazy? Because I need to know I'm the audience coordinator. Like, is this legit? And I'm like, no, no, I'm like the biggest Tom Cruise fan ever. Like, this is insane that I'm actually gonna be here. He's like, you're telling me the truth? I said, yeah, yeah, I'm telling you the truth. He goes, great. I'm sitting you right across from Tom's chair. So I'm putting you front row. And I just was like, ugh, what? What is happening right now? So they invite the audience in, we all file in, and lo and behold, Tom's chair is on the stage and right across from him, only a few feet, is me and the audience on the ground, of course, but directly across from where he'd be looking. And remember, I'm wearing a shirt with a picture of him doing double fist pumps. Mm. So he will likely notice it. I mean, it stands out among all the people who are tied up and collared. So anyways, we're sitting there and during this kind of like lull waiting for Tom to arrive for the interview, they were doing a few things to keep the audience kind of engaged and entertained, which again consisted of CBC staff and the Tom Crusader. They would show like sizzle reels of his movies and I, I was getting amped because I'm, I love Tom Cruise's movies, whereas other people were kind of like just chit-chatting. And I remember in the crowd kind of hearing murmurs of, oh my God, do you remember what happened on Oprah Winfrey? And oh my gosh, what, what if he says this or that? It was a little bit of chit-chat that was, I wouldn't say it was negative, but understandably so. They were all kind of there to see if like maybe something weird would happen during the interview mm. or maybe a little negative. At least. Right. right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But here's the deal. People can talk all they want about someone behind their back, but come the dance, come when that person enters the room, and not just any person. We're talking about, at the time, the biggest actor in Hollywood. People's tones shift. And I remember when the producer of the show at CBC came on stage and said, hello everyone, I would like to present to you Tom Cruise. And the doors opened, all of that murmur became oohs and ahs. He walks along the stage. Now keep in mind, there's a little bit of a catwalk that's elevated with the audience at the side that he's gonna walk the stage. But here's the deal. This person's not just the biggest actor in the world because of talent. I mean, that's part of it. But he's also one of the world's greatest like politicians when it comes to his understanding of people. Instead of walking down the catwalk, he gets off and immediately starts introducing himself to the audience members one by one. Like these people, whoever was talking trash, whoever had negative thoughts, they were won over like that. He's like, hi, my name's Tom, as if he needed to say that to anyone. And they're like, oh, I'm, I'm Susie, oh, I'm Michael, nice to meet you. He's like, oh, a pleasure, thanks for being here to support the interview, oh, thank you, thank you. He was doing that so much that the producer eventually had to say to him, Tom, like, uh, we, we gotta go. Like, right, this is yeah, a press yeah. tour. He gets on stage. As soon as he gets on stage and is kind of getting comfortable, the host, George, goes, hey, have you seen? Whew, points over at me. That guy, look at his shirt. And I show him the, I'm a Tom Crusader. And Tom does his kind of classic, like, <laughs> yeah, buddy, all right. And I remember in that moment, it's, I don't even know if it was, I almost think it was less 
utopic than I describe it now. In the moment, it was surreal because you realize that this is just a person. Right, yeah, of course. But it was cool because it's like, this is it. What that goal that I kind of just jokingly stated and tried to manifest each day, all the times I walked through New York to try to like maybe bump into him, that feeling of saying goodbye to Katie Holmes and knowing she was going to him and then having that interaction, it's weird because it's, it's beyond a bucket list check. You know, I could always buy a ticket and go to Ibiza and party at a nightclub, right? I can pay for that experience. But this is something that genuinely I needed fate and a lot of support from friends who just happen to know I'm trying to achieve this goal to make it happen. And in that moment, it happened. So he does his interview. It's interesting. I don't really remember much of it because the whole time I'm trying to act normal. And as mm. soon as you start to t think to act normal, kind of time just passes. Um, and so he does his interview, but at the end, Tom goes, I got some time to meet and greet with the fans if, if any of you want to stick around for autographs or pictures. And everybody at, in the audience, they knew there's one super fan, the Tom Crusader, right? And that's me and I'm sitting there. So they all kind of step back and like jokingly laugh, like give this guy a chance. Right, yeah, yeah. So I walk up, he's signing all my posters, He's taking a picture with me. At the time, I remember he, um, he was in discussions with a director named Sean Levy who had directed a movie called Night at the Museum. Um, and he was in discussion to do a movie with Ben Stiller called The Hardy Men. Right. It was essentially gonna be about the Hardy Boys of the detective duo grown up. And so I tried to like have a normal conversation with him, you know? Hey, I hear you. There's talks about doing a movie with Sean Levy. And he was very kind and and jovial. Anyways, he signed my, my, my posters, like I said, and, and then he kind of went on his merry way. And uh, I remember afterwards just thinking that as much as I really appreciated meeting Tom and, and having that experience, I actually realized that it was my friend Julia and all of the people that supported me in British Columbia that were actually the people that I worshipped. You know what I mean? Like, you, mm. you think to yourself, I thought that... Yeah, yeah. And I was happy to meet him, and, I, and I'm happy, I was happy to be the Tom Crusader, but I realized, like, my friends supported me in being that, and my friends embraced my unique identity in trying to be the ultimate Tom Cruise fan, and it's a kind of a humbling reminder that no matter... You think that it's the people on top, like the celebrities, that are your icons, but you sometimes don't realize that the people who are really icons are the ones closest to you because they treat you like you're special, mm. you know? And they treat you like the most important people in the world. And whether it be my friend Julia, or again, like I said, all my friends in BC, it's, they're, they're my Tom Cruises in reality. Right, I see. Do you think it's more, do you know that, you know, that experience then, once you've finally met Tom Cruise and you've had this realization, do you think you can then bring that to perhaps your acting and your theater where you, take appreciation for every single person part of the production rather than say the lead or the director. Do you have that mindset shift of everyone is in this altogether? Yeah, well, 100%. I mean, in theater, I, I often look at a theater production like a team sport. You know, you really do need each other to create whatever this is going to be. And there are no small lines, right? There's only kind of like small acting choices. Um, 
and yeah, you need each other to support each other. But, but the big takeaway in terms of just life was what a community of friends can do for you, you know? And that's, that's my Tom Crusader story. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry for this long-winded. No, no, sure. I like, like the, the insight with it and also where it came for life. And I guess, you know, you did get that realization of friends. Can I ask? Because from all the podcasts I've listened to and the people I've spoken to, you know, when people have, say, goals, once you achieve the goal, and actually let's look at Tyson Fury just here. He's a prime example. Mm. Wanted to be the heavyweight world champion. Strive for years. Got it. And then thought, now what? Did you get any any feelings of that? Like an anti-climax? Like now you've met Tom Cruise. You're the Tom Crusader. You're like, oh, this is it. What now? Did you have any of that? 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the. I don't know if I thought about it right in that moment. Um, but there's definitely a little bit of well, I did it. What next? Like, I can't meet him again. I mean, what, I just do it again? Try yeah, to do yeah. it again? And even if you do, it won't be the same as the first time. You know what I mean? Yeah, I actually yeah. listened to an interview recently uh, with Khabib, the famous UFC yeah, yeah. champion who's recently retired. And he retired on top, undefeated. And he said that once he won the title, it was very difficult for him to fight after because he did it. That's it, right? He's the champion. And he can defend it but it's not like he can become more of the champion of what than what he is he's got the title and i'm canadian and so george st pierre who's an iconic canadian fighter he said a similar thing right it's one thing to want to become champion but do you still want to be a champion and i know for me i i definitely felt on top of the world that day but it would i did have a weird relationship afterwards with being the tom crusader because i did it i mean i i met him and that's, you know, I guess the next step would be to try to work with him. But just meeting him was enough. Right, you know, I see. To humanize the hero and yeah. realize that, oh, yeah, everyone's like this. Everyone, everyone's awesome. Yeah, no, I do love that realization that everyone is awesome as well. Because often, I think we get taught to, in a way, with the media and with showbiz magazines to put people on pedestals. And then it's only when, you know, you come across someone in the public eye, like the experience you've just recounted, and you realize that they have the exact same like skin and bones as yeah. the rest of us. And in the context of this enormous planet and universe, they're really nothing. You know, in comparison to us, like we are not less or more than them just because of a celebrity status. It really is that everyone is the same, regardless of president or cleaner. You know, it, it, it gives my mindset definitely more clarity in that regard. There's a, yeah, there's a great book, Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. Brilliant book, yeah. Right? And so he kind of refers to that when he talks about... Um, he, he didn't do his own audiobook. He allowed someone else to read it. And the mentality behind it for him was, if I read my life story, I become the hero. But Goggins, that's his kind of like alter ego, yeah, right? Yeah. That his superhero ego that has turned him into this kind of, um, I don't know, alpha that he is. Mm-hmm. He kind of, he, he said that everyone's Goggins. I'm not special. I'm just telling you that you can do this too, right? Become your own superhero. And I definitely firmly believe that. Yeah, I love the message he said where if you say, oh, Goggins is crazy or Goggins is superhuman, that's an excuse. That means you don't have to go through that pain or that journey because you're putting it to him and you're abstaining from responsibility. When I heard that, I thought I was guilty of that. I used to look at Goggins and think, he's just a crazy motherfucker. But in reality, you know, Mm. we could all do it. And now that we've touched upon Goggins, we just chatted briefly off air that you've had quite a big weight loss at one point in your life. 
Can you tell me a bit more about that? You said you were 2.30? Yeah, I, my biggest was 2.30. Um, so, okay. So, when I was living in Toronto and tour guiding, I just remember that obviously as you get older, habits don't wear well. And so for me, I just let a chain of habits get a little bit out of control and you begin to balloon up. But, oh, you know what? For example, we're looking at an image of Tyson Fury and he's kind of the definition, mm -hmm. right? He's, he let himself balloon up and then he realized, oh my gosh, how did I get to this point? And I, do you remember, there was a video that Tyson Fury once released where he like, I'm going for a run, I'm gonna come back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, and, and so he had that kind of breaking point. And I was, I was similar. So in, I lived in South Korea for a bit. I was in Toronto, I wanted to teach abroad. I always knew I wanted to live in Asia. So I went to South Korea. And at that point, I remember like looking in the mirror, late night eating, late night drinks, and looking in the mirror one time and just thinking like, how did I get to this point? I mean, I used to, before this, I, I remember being able to do yoga and, and well, just I, I could run really fast. And I remember at this point, you know, my cardiovascular system was terrible and my weight had ballooned. But it's a, it's a bummer because it wasn't like I was, let's say, 180 pounds and I got to 190 and I caught myself slipping. It was like way past that point, you know. So sometimes seeing those old photos, it, it actually feels weird because you're like, how did I, how did that happen? Yeah, for sure. I, I needed someone like a David Goggins. Maybe I didn't need Dave, David Goggins, but I needed the ideas that he kind of um, preaches, I think at that time, to kick me in the butt. Yeah, have you heard of the book, Atomic Habits? I have, in fact, it's funny you say that. I just watched an interview with Ryan Holiday and James Clear, right, but cool. I've not read it, tell me more. Yeah, sure, when his basic, the main premise is 1% over time, where you know, it's this classic phrase of if you go to the gym today, you won't see a result. If you go to the gym tomorrow, you won't, but 1% over time. And he even breaks it down into a cue craving reward routine system where if you see a donut, suddenly you crave it, then you have it and your, your craving is satisfied. That's how it goes. And then the habit repeats. So, and then he basically goes into that for breaking bad habits where putting it out of sight, not making sure it's there. Uh, focusing on the smallest things every single day where if your aim is to run a 10k start with walking for 15 minutes then move it up to 1k etc and so from what you were describing there of the oh, how did I get to this point often it is because of these really small habits that you haven't noticed over time that can work for or against you mm -hmm. where you can think oh my god I've let myself go or you could think whew I've improved dramatically and I've not really realized there's just something and the something that's just happened it's not one light bulb moment it's just a small incremental changes I've actually got a quote where is it small incremental changes over time yield incredible results I think it's Robin Sharma who wrote that in the monk who sold his Ferrari mm. so that's basically the whole system that Atomic Habits advocates just over time small changes it's so frustrating to you like when when one decides like I know for me personally, right? It's like, okay, I'm gonna make a change. So then you go to the gym, you crank out a couple weights, right? And the next day you feel sore. So in your mind, you think, I did, I'm doing it. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. you're so sore, because it's so new. But then you go again and again, and your muscles are less sore each time. And the, the muscle development still isn't that impressive. And that's the frustrating point yeah. where you realize like, oh, the reason why it felt so good and I felt like I was making a big, massive change after one workout is because I was so out of shape. Yeah. <laughs> and you're right, it's like that consistency. 
And that's the grind. Yeah. I, well, here's something I was thinking about actually when, when I was at my heaviest. I remember thinking to myself, okay, I eat too much. I'm out late too much. Okay. Essentially, all my habits are skewed in the, the side of like unhealthy. So every extreme in that regard, it was there. Not every extreme, but multiple things, right? Whether it be eating late nights, it was in one side. And I thought to myself, okay, if I can live by having all of my habits on this side, which would be like the less than ideal healthy choices, okay? Couldn't the opposite be true? I mean, certainly it is. You look at someone like The Rock, he even has his cheat meals, but let's say like, the, so okay, I go to bed late and okay, and I don't get adequate sleep. So could I also wake up early and go to bed earlier? I, I must be able to do that. Okay, I eat late every night. Okay, so could I perhaps have dinner at 5 p.m.? I mu that must be true. Um, and people listening to this might be like, what's he on about? Like, it's so obvious. But when you're in that one side, it actually feels like you, it's the normal. You're yeah. so unhealthy that that becomes normal to you. And so I remember thinking, all right, whatever the opposite is, I'm going to do my best to do as many of those all at once, which is kind of an unreasonable thing to do. But I remember doing it. I remember one thing was like Conor McGregor apparently drank tons of water. I, I remember hearing that some, somewhere. So I was like, okay, I'm going to crush water from the moment I wake up with lemon in it. So that was one. I got a vitamin regimen and I'm still far from perfect. I mean, very far from perfect. But the point is, is that I almost had to retrain my brain to stop justifying things that clearly weren't making me or anyone around me happy. Mm -hmm. You've actually touched upon something else in Atomic Habits, which is about identity, where a lot of people will be trapped in that negative cycle, but think, oh, I'm just an unhealthy person. Exercise isn't for me, sleep isn't for me. So whenever you get the choice to have a nice healthy meal or a nice night's sleep, you go, oh no, that's not me. So the shift is changing yourself to, you know, the sort of person who would do that, like The Rock, for example. Like if you were to show, you know, a kebab every single night for a week to The Rock, he'd probably think that's absolutely ridiculous. But if you were to show it to somebody not in a good mental space, they'd think, oh, that's the norm. And vice versa would say a plate of vegetables, he'd think, oh yeah, great. Someone else would think, oh no, that's disgusting. So it really depends on where you're at, your mindset. And the reason I think it's difficult is because you do have to rewire your brain. We don't like change. So when you have to rewire and be conscious of it, it's tricky at first, you know, your mind is so used to getting the pizza or the burger, when it, you pick up the salad or the water with the lemon, you think, oh shit, this isn't familiar. So it tries to stop you doing anything other than do that. The subconscious can be so powerful and becoming conscious of it is the real challenge for me. Yeah, yeah, I totally hear what you're saying. I, I, it's often, I mean, I'm gonna not say this as eloquent as I think a professional would, but it's that idea that the Batman and Joker, the Superman and Lex Luthor, they're not separate people. Mm. They're one person, right? And that's you. And I, I know from myself personally, it was like I had to realize in looking at the mirror, it's not the external things. The world isn't against me. Um, and the world isn't so difficult. I'm difficult on myself, right? Like I'm my own villain. I have to, as you said, rewire your brain, which is essentially you have to get rid of the Joker psychology and yeah. you have to become the Batman. 
But you all, the first thing you have to do is realize that it's not others necessarily that are making you do this. Those are just small factors into this situation. But the reality is it's like, you have to kind of just look at yourself and go, we're doing it. You know, I have a friend named Quinn, shout out to Quinn. And he says two words, doing it. And I, it's a Canadiana type term, but I love it because it's like, you, you gotta do it. You just gotta do the work. Yeah, it goes back to a phrase I heard fairly recently and it really resonated that both avenues are hard. It's hard to keep you know, taking in the negative habits because short term it's easy, but you're gonna be overweight or you'll fall out with friends or you'll be depressed. That's hard. Changing and exercising well, eating well, sleeping well, that's very hard because you have to stay grounded and conscious and you have to do the work when you'd rather sleep. Either way is hard. Which one is gonna bring the best results? You have to choose. Mm -hmm. You have the choice and the freedom and the responsibility to do that. Now it is, it's tricky, but which one are you gonna go for? That's yeah. the, they're the two options on the menu. Yeah, and, and there's gonna be definitely times whenever anybody I know for myself, and I'm, I know for many people, right? When you do make that conscious choice to at least try to make some shifts towards a better you, there's gonna be slip ups, there's gonna be stumbles, you're gonna wake up that one day and go, how did I do fill in the blank? Yeah. Why did I do fill in the blank? But it's a matter of just realizing that that's part of it, yeah. right? There's roadblocks and, and they're likely going to be due to the choices you make. But you can either kick yourself and go right back to where you were, like snakes and ladders, right? You just slide down yeah, back to yeah. square one, or you realize, uh-uh, keep on moving, right? You may have stepped a few, few blocks back, but keep forward motion. Mm -hmm. And on this show, it's called Comeback, so it's about challenges. Mm. So this is the, I guess, the, the challenge section. Uh, whenever you faced a challenge or you are facing a challenge, do you have any main techniques that you use? Any, like, doing it motto? Is there, there's that one, of course. Is there anything else that you use to really get yourself focused and on track? Any favorites? Um, yeah, I mean, okay, so yoga is a big one. Now, my wonderful wife, Bernadette, she knows yoga well. And when I do yoga, I do a form of yoga that was inspired by a former professional wrestler named Diamond Dallas Page. You know what I'm talking about? No, I don't actually. <laughs> okay. Uh, I was like, He's a former pro wrestler who created a form of yoga called DDP Yoga, and it's what got me into it. It was almost like, a, for lack of better words, a macho version of yoga. Mm. It's yoga. It's just got different names. So that got me into it first. But if I do that every day, it's a great way for me to like measure where I am in life. So a, an example would be, I didn't do it for years. I'm in South Korea. Okay, let's try to touch my toes. Well, that didn't work. That's probably not a good thing because I used to be able to do like total forward folds, right? And now I'm like losing my breath trying to touch my toes. So it's a great measure for where I am. And I try my best to do that as often as possible. Um, I try my best to be as honest as possible. Um, I love to joke, I love to have fun, but I do my best to be honest with myself and others because this, I, I, I know that like, again, in a, with an unhealthy, in any unhealthy situation, not necessarily lies manifest, but people tell themselves untruths. And so I'm trying to do that. I don't know if there's any like trick or anything. Cause I, again, I, I feel like every day I'm so far from being the person that I hope to be in the future, but yeah, the, the big one is keep fit, keep active, educate, educate myself, learn more, be humble. 
powerful set of messages and I don't want to move on too quickly but mm. I do want to talk more about your musical theatre and your acting journey sure uh, regard, I guess this also links to challenges. I'm going to use a bit of a stereotype, and I'm sure it is true, that when you're mixing with a load of people in the theatre setting, that there's a lot of egos. There's a lot of uh, dynamics that you have to play with. How do you challenge or navigate that balance of mixing with people and trying to cater to everyone's needs and your own? How does that work for you? Yeah, well, I, I know one of the things was like, for me, I, I got into theatre... Not as like, a, you know, there's like the kind of the self-proclaimed theater nerd. I, and I'm saying that like as a compliment. Mm. People really love theater, right? And I came actually at theater from an athletic background. So I, I wasn't, I didn't come into that world like knowing what my favorite role would be to do in the future or this musical or this composer. That wasn't how I approached theater. So when I did enter it, it had a very different energy than I'd say sports. So for example, when I played American football in high school, that energy is very much like, you know, aggressive in a fun way. And um, and there's a lot of camaraderie. Theater's similar, but there the energy as opposed to like the aggression, it's more, yeah, like attention seeking. Mm. It's not bad. It's a really, it's the best group of people you can ever be with at a house party because everyone's having a good time so in that regard I, I felt blessed to, for my university experience but how do you manage like yeah it's tough I mean depending on the show you're doing I think the big thing is, is that people just I always try to find ways to give myself space right and I think everyone in any production does that because you essentially become like a family and you genuinely love each other just like a family but the best way, I think, to mitigate any hardships is to just find time to get away from the collective and find your own downtime. Mm. And I, I've done some theater tours, and that seemed to help. But it is an interesting world, and it's the, the people that are in theater shows have a very, very fun energy. Yeah. I mean, I, I miss so many of my, my more like theater-loving friends that are in Toronto and Vancouver because there's some of them most fun people yeah. you know what i mean they're like the best really having a good time oh yeah yeah and on another challenging note in this industry there will be lots of rejection which nobody likes to be rejected we're going back to what we discussed earlier nobody likes change especially the brain we like familiarity we're also wired to avoid rejection we don't like it but in your industry you have to face it how do you deal with that yeah so i I think when I first got into theater, especially in university, there was only so many shows you could audition for. So when you would go for a role, it was of, it was, it felt so significant, right? So if I didn't get one of those roles, when there's not a lot to choose from, or not choose from, but to audition for, that hurt. Very competitive. Afterwards, I moved to Toronto and I kind of tried to do the film and TV uh, deal. And that's when my kind of callus started to thicken, if that makes sense, in terms of being rejected. Because when you get into Toronto, and this is a city that I would say is a really big advertising and, and TV city, movies somewhat, yeah, a lot of them come from the States though, and they've already been cast, or only need a few people from Toronto, but it's really, when I was there, at least big advertising and TV. So I went out for a lot of commercials. And you get into a room and you're sitting there and there's like 45 people that look quite similar to you and you maybe let's say you're auditioning for mcdonald's hamburgers which i did you'll sit in a room 
and they'll say, here's the sides, which is essentially the script for the day. Man eats burger, man sits at table, man takes a bite of the burger, man looks up after taking a bite of the burger, enjoys it, man looks down at the burger again, okay, or whatever oh, it is, yeah, yeah. okay? So you get into this room and you do the whole thing, but instead of having a burger there, it's just a slice of Wonder Bread. And so you sit there and you eat this dry piece of bread and you look at it glowingly and you know, and they go, great, next. And you can, after you do like 10 of those, you realize it's okay if I get turned down. Right. Because it wasn't really about my talent. It was about my look. Maybe it's changed now, but at the time it's like they have a very specific person they're looking for, but there's not much you can do within the realm of taking a bite of a sandwich and get offended. Like, oh, how did I not get that? I should have known. But the thing that it, um, it did prepare me for later on down the road is that I genuinely don't, it's not that I don't care, but like I'm not worried about being rejected because it, you just move on. And that's a great thing about acting, especially in that kind of acting agent world is you get turned down so many times. If you take it personal every time, you're doomed yeah. because you're in for a long, unhappy ride, right? And so I just got turned down, turned down, turned down, turned down. And at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. Yeah. Whether it even be for like a job you're really hoping for, you know, you get turned down and you think, but that was my dream job. And it's like, was it? You don't know. You never had it. You know what I'm saying? I do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. Like, so in that regard, you, I, yeah, I was just humble about it. Yeah. And it has hit me there where I've done it before where I've thought, oh, I would have dreamt to have had that role, not within acting, but just in other areas. Mm. But then thought, do I really? Because this is just the idea. I don't actually know the reality because you have to go through it. Like if you don't have it, then you can't you know, say what it was like to lose it or not because you could say, land your dream job that you think is your dream job, turn up and it's a nightmare. And vice versa, you could think, oh, I'll just take this job just because I have to. And it mm. turned out to be your best experience of your life. You never know. So that's an also a good metaphor to you know, take into account when you do get rejected, that you know, it might be for the best. I don't want to sound too cliche, but everything does happen for a reason, etc. So that's also handy to take into account. Yeah, I actually remember um, I ended up finally getting a commercial. It was for a beer called Rickards White. So in Canada, we have this company called Rickards Red. They were releasing their new kind of like Belgian wheat beer, Rickards White. And I got, I auditioned for it. Again, the audition consisted of me like cheersing someone. I made it through the first round of auditions and obviously I ended up getting cast. And I remember thinking, I'm doing it. Shout out to Quinn, doing it. I made it. And I remember the shoot day came and the call was, the call like to arrive was around 5 a.m. And that was not great because I thought, oh my gosh, this is what people do. And everyone's like, yeah, this is, you've done it, but like you're going to be paid a lot, which I was, but like, yeah, you need to be there at 5 a.m. And you get there and I was sitting there in this outfit that was kind of made from like, it was like gap clothes. And about, I don't know, 2 p.m. or so, I, I went in and they, have, they set me up at the bar. And a lot of it was just people stay there, stay there, stay there. And then, Eventually, after an hour of doing the setup, they're like, okay, three, two, one, everyone have a good time. And I remember just like raising my glass and this camera was on a track and it kind of just spun around really quickly. And then they went, cut. Okay, we're gonna do that two more times. They reset it up. Action cut, 
three more times, very quick shots. And I was like, what the heck? That's it? And I went back to the kind of acting area. They had catering, so that's nice. But they held us to like, I don't know, midnight, 1 a.m.? Jesus. And I remember thinking to myself, like, yeah, I know the pay is going to be good, but, you know, is this it? Is this what you were hoping to do? Is this what you really wanted to be as an actor? And let's imagine, okay, so I, the, the ad eventually comes out, and I realize that it's a hyper slow-mo ad. So that track was quick for us, but in the ad, it's like one of those matrix shots right, where like people yeah. are slow-moing. I didn't know that at the time, but that's what it was. And I remember seeing the 30-second ad. I'm in it for about like, you know, 1.5 seconds, which is fine. And it felt somewhat cool, but it's like, I would rather have just spent the day with my friends. Now, that's a bad business choice. because I. Yeah. But I think it's a, it, was a, it was, again, like a humble reminder of it's okay to achieve something and realize it's not what you want. For sure. And I think for a lot of actors, this is kind of going bigger now. It's like, I know for me, I always thought that if I were to act, I would get to become these other characters and live these fascinating lives through the characters. Yeah, of course. But then you realize it's like, wait a second. I can just live an exciting life. I can just be that. I don't need CGI screen behind me making it look like I'm in Vietnam, pretending to be this adventurous character with a big beard. I can just go there. And that realization is also a great one when you're just, you go, oh my gosh, just live it. I can do that. Yeah, yeah you don't yeah. have to pretend. I don't need to method act as Johnny Hero. Just go be yourself and do it. Yeah, and on the contrary to that then, you did mention just then about you know that moment throughout that whole day of thinking, oh, is this it? Why do you, or why did you continue to do acting? Like, what drove you or motivated you to continue acting and being involved in theatre? Um, that's a good question. So, uh, after doing those types of small performances, I did a small movie called Storming Juno. It was like a World War II movie. I realized, okay, one thing I'm terrible at film and TV. Why? And you might have noticed this just sitting across from me. I'm way too expressive. And I'd always get told, like doing like uh, little acting classes sometimes, and just even on set or from friends, you need to be less animated with your face because on a screen it looks huge whenever you do anything with your face. That's a reason why, like in cinema, uh, they zoom out on actors who are going to be real big because if they were to zoom in, it, it gets it's it's a lot, right? Right. Okay. So I knew that I actually just wasn't that good at it, and that's okay. But the thing I knew that I loved was voiceover. And so I ended up approaching the voice agent uh, in, within the agency that I was a part of. And I always just said, like, hey, if you ever want to take me on, as, please, please. And he eventually did. And, and that actually went, um, it went well for me in the sense that I booked quite a few video games. And one of the things I think that was, made me more successful, I wouldn't say overwhelmingly successful, but more successful than film and TV, was that in the booth, those people who are auditioning me, they're bored because they're sitting in this unlit room or very dimly lit room listening to people read for video game characters endlessly. They have a thousand characters per game and they're just like, okay, read org number two. Okay, great, next. And I thought to myself, okay, if I can bring that same animated personality that I'm being told to silence on film and TV, I can bring that into the studio and I did. 
I went full on every time. And I remember that it wasn't even that I was good at doing voice acting. I was just good at entertaining the people in the studio. And so that went well for me. And I eventually ended up getting on a show called Beyblade. You know that famous, it's a Japanimation type thing and they rip those. They're like the violent dreidels. Mm. They collide. So I did a season of that as a villain named, um, oh gosh, how am I forgetting it now? Pluto. Right, okay. The horrifying name of Pluto. Pluto, nice, okay. Yeah, but I like the idea that maybe because Going back to the rejection thing we talked about, maybe because perhaps TV or film isn't for you, you could find another avenue, voiceover. Like your skills can always, you know, be complemented in a different manner. That's also a nice realization. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, here's a here's an interesting voiceover story. Cool. So, okay, go back. Going back to Beyblade. When I went from these little video games to Beyblade, that was a big step up. Non-union, which is kind of like the freelancey type gigs. Union, you're in an actors' union. This is a big show, right? This is going to be broadcast and the US and Canada. So I show up one day to the studio and I'm early. And the, I, I think she was like, what, the head producer? She, she was the one running, she was the director essentially of the voice acting, okay? I get there early, she sees me out in the hall. She's like, Carrie, come on in. You gotta watch this guy. So I go in and I'm looking at what looks like a super stoner, right? He's got like long hair. He's got the kind of scraggly beard. It's not a beard, but it is a beard. Um, kind of like a, you know, like his shirt looks like it's unwashed, mm. flip-flops. Like he's very chill. And he's just kind of standing there looking at the script, reading it over. And I'm thinking to myself, like, why does she want me to watch this guy? Anyways, she says to him, like, are you ready? And he's like, yeah, yeah, let's go. Let's do it. And as soon as she goes record, his screen starts to go. Now keep in mind, when you do voiceover for Japanese shows that have already been animated, they have someone in advance that matches the dialogue to the mouths of the characters. So you're essentially doing karaoke. If the show hasn't been animated, you have free reign to say whatever you want. Right, okay. Here, you have the the lines coming up as you're meant to say them. So for this guy, he had something similar. But he wasn't a character. He was the introduction person, like the narrator at the start, who recaps what happened in the previous episodes to bring the viewers up to date. And he's got about a 30 second or less window to get in a boatload of information. So this guy who's super chill, she's like, okay, here you go. And he goes from chill to three, two, one. And he turns into like Speedy Gonzalez with the ultimate godlike voice. He's like, on last episode of Beyblade, we're here and, was, and we saw this character. And it's just, it was mind blowing <laughs> to watch this person go from what looked like someone they just dragged yeah, into the yeah. studio and said, hey, are you free? And he's like, of course I'm free, right? Like I'm ready to go into this rapidly speaking voice god and he crushed out like five episodes in no time at all and then he leaves right so he he took maybe 10 15 minutes you know he just crushed these intros and he leaves and she said something like oh he's been with us for how many seasons has the show been around it's insane it's like 20 seasons like this guy is 
a close to six-figure salary. Jesus. Gotta be. I mean, he's the guy. Yeah, This yeah. is what he does. And he, I remember he left the studio, and I thought to myself, he's going to walk down the street. No one's going to know who he is. He's just going on his merry way. He works for 15 minutes a week, and he's doing it. And he's raking it in. He's raking it in. And uh, I just remember thinking to myself, like, that's actually having it made. Right? There, you can be a, a Brad Pitt or Tom Cruise and work those 14, 15-hour days, six months of filming, the ruthless kind of like overdub after, the editing, the press tours, or you can be this guy. Yeah. You can walk the streets, have a great life, no one has, says anything to you, and you're just crushing voiceovers as the Beyblade intro guy. He's yeah. a legend. It just goes to show that maybe if you don't care about the credit you get, then maybe you could go a lot further. Because a lot of the time, and this isn't just acting, this can be a lot of industries, the recognition and the validation is what people crave. But then that guy won't get any of that, but he's really going to make it behind closed doors and no one else will have a clue. And as you were saying, that's the secret to making it. Yeah, I have a friend who actually said to me, I think it was after high school, because I was, I was trying to express that I wanted to do acting legit, you know? And I remember he said to me, do you want to be an actor or do you want to be famous? Because they're two different paths. If you want to be an actor, that's fine. And in Canada, you can be employed. You won't be rich, but there's many opportunities for you to be an actor. And that's great. But if you want to be famous, that's a different path and that's a different motivation. So you just got to clarify for yourself which one you want to be. And I remember that actually put a big fork in my road because I had to start thinking well, there's that young ego right yeah, this is pre-social media so your outlet to getting recognition was being on TV or yeah, yeah. right and so it's a it's a good question though for anyone do you want to be kind of the artist or do you want to be famous and which path do you want and once you know that you got to plan accordingly because they're very different motivations. It almost sounds intrinsic versus extrinsic. Where if you want to be an actor because you love acting, great. I think you almost would take, you know, a role in a tiny show that nobody watches and you might get stopped by someone in your local town. But if you want, you know, the fame and the glory, then you'd be disappointed even if you got a million dollar contract for a movie if it flops at the box office. It really does depend on your intrinsic motivation. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. That's no, crazy. And I guess what I want to do now is move on slightly to your project, Carry OK, OK. Sure. Can you tell me a bit more? What is Carry OK? Yeah. What's Carry OK? Sorry about that. Yeah, it, um, it started here in Vietnam. So in 20, I moved to Vietnam first in 2015. And around 2017, I was online and I saw that there was a looper. So a looper is, Ed Sheeran uses one, yeah, yeah. right? You can do the solo performance, you can loop yourself. It was becoming more popular. Now, previous to this, before 2015, I was in a musical called Ride the Cyclone. And I played a character that was a rapper. And part of my musical number, I actually looped a beatbox drum line. And beatboxing has always kind of been a party trick that's been in my repertoire. I didn't say that word right, but you know what I mean. I know in my toolkit. Yeah, yeah. Um, since high school, you know, and so I had done it before, but then I saw this, these new loopers that were like five pedals and, and you could trigger things with your fingers. So I ended up purchasing one and when it got delivered out here to Vietnam, to, to Ho Chi Minh City, I started fiddling around with it and realized like, oh, this is 
I think I got a good grasp on this. And I started to just kind of write songs for my friends at house parties and then on my own and playing them for friends. And as I was planning to move back to Canada in 2018, I knew that I wanted to put myself in an uncomfortable position because from kind of discomfort is growth. So I, I applied to the Victoria British Columbia Fringe Festival, which is a independent theater festival where artists can go and show their works if you get drawn. It's kind of like mm. a, dem not democratic, but it's a luck of the draw right, type yeah, thing. Like a lottery. Yeah, and I got I got picked because I actually went in the international artist category. Uh, I was in Vietnam, right? So yes. a little bit of a loophole. Ah, nice. So there's it's not not as much competition. So I, I ended up getting in, and at that point I knew I'm going to write a show. I didn't know what it was going to be, but I knew it was going to have something to do with the Looper and performing there. And my name is Carrie, so I created this character named karaoke as in karaoke one person show creating music that i sing over top but it's me and the idea was that it would be almost like reggie watts who is james corden's band leader he does a lot of beatboxing it was going to be a one person show so a very classic like monologue show ricky gervais is kind of in that ballpark among others so that but also a one person musical because I thought that's, that's a niche that no one's really gone after is a one-person show, very common. Beatboxing and looping, very common. But to merge those two worlds, I thought, how fun would that be? And it's a great way to create, yeah, my own identity as a performer. So I ended up doing that show in Victoria, BC, and was thankfully voted, um, oh God, I'm going to, it was a, an award. It was oh, like okay. the best. Sure something show right yeah um and the next summer i decided i'm gonna try to tour it across canada as best as possible at the time it was something that when i when i told people i was gonna do it they thought like you're gonna why are you doing that you know I, they, they wouldn't say it as such but i can kind of get that energy and i totally understand i wasn't unaware that this was a weird type of like choice to make but i um i ended up touring across Canada and the first few fringes I did I was still trying to work out the kinks of the show and I have a great friend uh, named Mike Delamont he's a wonderful person and he's a, a very established solo performer in Canada and he saw my show and asked if he could produce it and once he jumped on board he really helped work out the kinks and the goal kind of long term with it was to create a show that would uplift everyone but i was really trying to like make it family friendly at the same time um and hopefully one day even bring it to schools and that was the path i was on in fact one of the schools i worked for in victoria bc pre-pandemic i performed it for that school and i know the students they just thought it was great because here's their teacher yeah who's also performing this crazy out there musical and putting himself out there and and i that was really nice but then of course around the bend was the pandemic yes so it, it's i i've no regrets and uh, so many artists have been hit but for me the great thing was i never want to leave any i don't whether it be living in asia or doing a fringe theater show that i created i just never want to have the feeling of, I wish I had of fill in the blank. Mm. 
I don't like those thoughts. No, they're horrible, aren't they? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Especially when you're doing the reflection. Like, I'm currently reflecting on my two and a half years here, and I think there's a lot of things that if I was to go back in time and said, you will have done this, you will have done your podcast, you will have started writing, you will have immersed yourself in the community, I think, well, thank goodness. Because I was getting to a point after a year thinking, well, I could have regrets here. If I don't start this now, I'm going to look back one day and think, what have I done? So it's like great to have that, that clarity of no regrets. It's a completely great philosophy. Can I ask you about the themes in OK Carry or Carry OK? Sorry. Yeah, no worries. Uh, anxiety, social media, and learning to be a hero for others. Can you tell me more about why you chose those themes? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, the show kind of uh, follows my own path from finding difficulties and trying to overcome it. Um, when I became a teacher and a proper teacher especially and by that I mean like I I ended up I went from teaching just kind of like ESL which is great yeah, yeah. but then I ended up getting my, my degree and when I started kind of going to schools one of the things I really wanted to um, be and still want to be around my students is a ball of positivity even at my worst times not that I'm being inauthentic but even at my worst times or maybe down times I don't want them to see that. I want to project positivity and give them the best of me. And I realized that with technology taking up a lot of people's times, especially young people, that they don't necessarily get to see face-to-face -face people who put themselves out there in an extreme manner. Mm. They see it in TikTok. They see it in Instagram. They see it on YouTube. And earlier we were talking about kind of celebrities and, and putting them on a pedestal. So I think today especially people look at those types of outgoing behaviors and they see it on a screen, which again makes it feel like it's something other than them. And I really wanted to do a show and be an adult in their life that shows you can be completely out there and do something that's completely bizarre and that's okay. And that, that was really a big, that's, it's, it's important to me. It's not about losing your inner child or anything. It's about being, un, being unafraid. At the end of the day, it's almost stoic, right? Like don't yeah. worry what other people think. And if other people are telling you to, uh, I don't know, like, be quiet or be... Or, or tone it down. Yeah, tone it down. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to be that. It doesn't mean I want you to act out of control. It's just don't worry about anyone's judgment. And that's the show I, that's the show I really try to create. It's like super positive. Um, it took inspiration from School of Rock. Right, okay. That actually movie got me into teaching. Right. Because I, I saw it and I thought, Jack Black is... It's a movie, but his character represents something I think that's important, which is it's important to tell young people to never lose that creative side of them and to never ever other creativity. You are creativity. Everyone has the ability to be creative. You just have to see it in yourself. And I think the more people consume entertainment, the less they give themselves time to think about their own creativity. And we see that with TikTok. Yeah, and TikTok yeah. people mimic others. Mm. Right, they're not necessarily creating anything new. And I'm not trying to poo-poo on TikTok. 
But the thing that builds that community is really kind of like the mimicry. You Here's my version of whatever the dance is. And that's right, great. Sure, yeah. But often it's, there's a very select few who are creating the initial dance and a very large portion who are mimicking it. And mimicry is an important thing in terms of um, society. But I... I really want to see young people be unafraid to love face-to-face communication and to be unafraid to be creative and to know that when you're creative, you're going to try things that might fall flat on your, on your face. But as you said with your podcast, it's better to do yeah. than to wonder or to not try to think of anything at all. Yeah, because even if, for example, it does, let's, let's use this quote loosely, fail, right? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't go the way you plan. It might lead you to another avenue. We'll use the acting as an example. If you go for a movie and you realize, you know, it's not for you, you might think, oh, but my voice is. So you could go to voiceover. At least if you do something, even if it doesn't work out necessarily, it might lead you to another avenue. Like doing something creates momentum, creates action, creates habits, and actually goes there rather than just staring at TikTok mimicking like it's nice to be original and creative and actually do something of your own accord right and I think too with the pandemic I remember thinking about this um, what the pandemic has done many things but one of the things that kind of taught me is there's all these things like all this all, so much of happiness rides on tomorrow so you know I always like you have a career and, and you you develop that career which is a very good thing to do. I'm not saying it's not, but but you build up these uh, these avenues towards eventually feeling really happy, right? Building up a certain amount of money, maybe investing in this, building up a career. Again, these are wonderful things. But then all of a sudden the pandemic comes in and all and, and those plans kind of get wiped off the the whiteboard for lack of better words. And I always feel like I've little been a little bit directionless and tried so many different avenues, but I'm so happy that I have been. You know, I love being a teacher, but I'm not necessarily a teacher. That's not my identity. I love, I've, I've done acting, voiceover, um, you know, theater, uh, worked at CBC even after the Tom yeah, Cruise sure. thing. I've tried many different things and my path has gone all many different places. And it's almost like the pandemic when I saw some of these things start to crumble, it was almost a bit comforting. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I took advantage of all these other avenues because had I gone down the path of work this place and just stay there and then you see had I had done that, things kind of fall apart. You just realize how unpredictable life is and how unpredictable tomorrow is. Yeah, for sure. Like, I know it sounds slightly cliche and it's used in a lot of self-help books, but the present moment is really all there is. And so taking advantage of that point is really... You know, the key, like, if you worry about what's happened uh, in the past or the future, you're taking away from what could be amazing now. And often you can realize you have an amazing situation in front of you where you're involved in a great theater show. You're doing something to do with acting. You're in Vietnam. We've not even touched upon Vietnam yet. You're in this beautiful country. But if you're worrying of what will the board, if the borders don't open, oh, but I fucked up this last job. You're completely missing what's right in front of you. 100%. And, and often, too, um, whenever one pursues it, it could be a podcast or a creative endeavor, the, the, the question that always comes around is like, uh, are you getting paid? And it's like, I have money. I'm okay. Yep. Right? Like, I have money and I'm good. Uh, are you asking me, am I like making, like, am I wealthy because of this? The answer is likely no, but that would be for many creative endeavors. Even yep. people who have written successful books 
still don't necessarily make a whole ton of dough from it. It's an expensive endeavor to, to publish and everything like that, right? So, but I'm happy and I can confidently say that for a lot of the things that I've done. Here's an example, okay, so I love pro wrestling. I love pro wrestling. It's, the, it's actually really like a form of theater that I love as much as any other form of theater. I love since I was a kid seeing like these people come out and get the crowd going and I just I just love it. I love how ridiculous it is because to me it's it's one of the only things in our world that admits that it's fake. Okay, so you have Hollywood actors giving speeches yeah. and like trying to change the world and it's like you're you got this because you know you're being fake. Like everybody's so fake. You have reality shows. They're so fake. They're so staged. You have politicians. Get out of here. Yeah. Right? Okay, yeah. Everything's so fake. Wrestling goes, listen, we're going to tell you up front we're fake. Now, now that that's over, enjoy the show. And I love that they're at least honest about their inauthenticity because then you can just enjoy the product. Okay. But what I'm trying to get at here is when I moved to Vietnam for the second time recently, there was a lockdown, so obviously not a lot was happening. But I always knew of this organization called Vietnam Pro Wrestling. And I've always wanted to be involved in pro wrestling. You know, it's one thing to like love something so much, but to never have any part of it other than being a consumer. Yeah, sure. I, I wanted to do something. I wanted to leave my mark, even if in the smallest yeah. way, right? Even if I was like at a live wrestling show and I got on TV holding a sign or something, that would have made me happy as a teenager. So as things start to open up, I reach out to Vietnam Pro Wrestling, uh, uh, a young man named Rocky, that's his wrestling name. He started this organization in 2015 and I say, listen, I wanna be involved. Let me just be involved. So he invites me to go to one of their training sessions. It's on a Friday. It's in this kind of dance studio in D1. And I train with them. I'm a bit older than the rest of them. And, and some of these people are quite young. There was like an 18 year old. I remember he was doing like cartwheels and, right. and I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but I look big, right? I got this like bald head and I, I'm a, a bit bigger in terms of just physically than some of them there, which helped me out. But, you know, as soon as they start coming up and showing me what they can do i'm going oh my gosh but at least I, i'm showing an interest yeah for sure so i say to rocky after like i would love to get involved more and he's like okay whatever yeah sorry oh no no so facebook i message him and i say to him one day rocky i've done voiceover before i want to be the commentator your english commentator for vietnam pro wrestling and he's like uh, he probably just he's not brushing me off he's like you know okay whatever so what I do is I have a little studio at my house and I record an entire voiceover for one of the matches and I send it to him. I'm like, here's an example of what I might be able to do. And it's hammy, you know? It's like, welcome to Vietnam Pro Wrestling. Here we are. You know, like it's, it's over the top, but that's what wrestling is. It's over the top. And he loves it. So over the course of Tet, right? As we're like nearing the first day, so not over the course, but right before Tet, He's like, yeah, do it. And he sends me three matches. I record the voiceover. They're on YouTube. They have a few hundred sh like views. But the coolest thing is, for the foreseeable future, I'm the commentator of Vietnam Pro Wrestling. Now, if I were to look back at my five-year-old self and say, you know, one day you're gonna be doing voice uh, commentating for 
a wrestling organization in Vietnam, I would go, that's ridiculous. And I don't think I necessarily want to do that. But me now, it's another one of those tick boxes of like, this is so bizarre yeah. that it's awesome. Like I'm, I am the voice of Vietnam pro wrestling for the time being. And just to be able to know that I've done one thing for pro wrestling, one thing seen by a few hundred people again, I don't care. I'm so happy making money. No, I make money through teaching. I got money. That's okay. But man, oh man, it's a dream come true to be able to say, Vietnam pro wrestling commentator. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> and this links directly what we were saying earlier about the intrinsic motivation where, okay, yeah, thousands of people might not view it, etc. but it's a, you know, it's on the list though and you've managed to take it off and you've made a mark somehow where it doesn't matter if, you know, no nobody say, you know, picks it up and goes, "Oh, we want you to commentate for WWE." It's fine. You've done and you've achieved it. That's why I think that we should give us some kind of, should give ourselves some kind of credit for the things we do do because it can e it, we can easily say, "Oh yeah, but only a few people watched it." But no, you've still done it. Like <laughs> Yeah, and that's the thing, right? It's like it's like I realized that in one, I I thought I needed Rocky to say yes before I did anything. But I had to do something and I did it. And who knows? It could open into something, or it could open into just me doing these matches here yeah. and there. But I would rather know that I get to do this as something on the side because it's bizarrely awesome, and that's what life is. Yeah. It's endlessly chaotic, super bizarre. Nothing makes sense when it's all said and done, but that's why it's awesome. And that's what pro wrestling to me is, and that's why doing commentary, it's, it's it's ridiculous but isn't that life and i get to commentate this unreal form of theater yeah i think about it a lot about creative projects even ones that i'm not necessarily into pro wrestling an example i've never watched it i'm not into it etc but i appreciate the fact that somebody else is where i often think even though i don't have a personal interest if somebody else gets so much joy and fulfillment off commentating on pro wrestling or being involved in some capacity let them fucking go for it. It does not matter. Which is why when I perhaps encounter people who'll say, oh, well, why would you do ballet or wrestling or acting or theatre or podcast? I think, why not? If you enjoy it. And that's literally the only reason. That is a perfectly adequate reason. I don't care how bizarre. I don't care how weird. If you enjoy doing it, that is perfectly adequate. Just keep on doing it. That's my personal view. Yeah, no, and that's totally fair. Pro wrestling fans, I think what's what's so cool about them is that They are part of the fictitious world. They know that that person's not a bad guy. They know that that person's not a good guy. They know they're just human beings playing characters, you know? But they're in on the joke. They're in on the reality. Yeah. It's like, uh, like LARPing, like live action role play, right? But everyone in that arena is in on it. We're, the performers are performing based on the audience's responses. The people who are creating storylines are using the organic feedback from the audience to guide them with planning what they do next. And it's in real time. And I, I love this idea that when you go there, you're in Rome's Colosseum, but the outcomes are predetermined and everyone in attendance understands it's predetermined. The winner has been decided, but they're willing to sit through a 20-minute event and cheer it as though it's a real athletic competition, yeah, yeah. 
hoping for an outcome, even though it's been predetermined. The choice has been made before they enter the ring, but they don't give up on it. They, they create this theater. Like how awesome, it's, all, it's like ultra pantomime. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, and pantomimes, they will have moments to get the crowd involved. From start to finish, a pro wrestling show, every single person is a supporting cast member. Everybody's adding to this reality. It's, it's beautiful. I mean, a, a form of theater where in some cases there are 75,000 to upwards of 90,000 people if we're looking at big WrestleManias. They're all part of the cast. That's bananas. Every sign, every cheer, every tear, every woohoo, every boo, they're all acting. Everyone is acting there. And that's what's awesome about it. That does sound absolutely What a cast size. Yeah. You've actually convinced me now. I want to you know, experience an event just to actually get in the heart of it. Just there, from hey, spoiler alert. There's, there's some coming around the corner of Vietnam Pro Wrestling. I've been told by Rocky some are coming soon. Excellent. And I'm really keen to promote it to the expat community here. Okay, cool. Because you know what? Let's go. Yeah, like yeah. what a... It's, it's... Whether you like it or not, it's just fun to be able to be in attendance and be entertained in a way that you thought, oh, I... I like it a little bit more than I thought. Yeah, this is yeah. It's weird, but that's what makes it exciting. Yeah, I guess that's what life's all about, just stumbling upon things that you didn't expect and making the most of it. A hundred percent. And how many times, for example, like when traveling, you go and... Okay, like in Morocco, I remember in Morocco, I get there and like there's a guy that had like a monkey show. You know, and I, beforehand I would have thought, this is animal cruelty, this is ridiculous, I don't want to see anything like this. And the guy gets the monkey and the monkey's having a ball, like doing these performances and people are cheering. And here I am going like this thing that I would have just immediately wrote, wrote off if someone described it. Like, yeah, oh, you can see sure. a monkey show or snake charmers. Well, whatever, I don't want to see that. But then you see it and you're kind of like, okay, this is weird. And I don't know if I like it or not, but I appreciate the entertainment value because this is totally bizarre. And I think that's pro wrestling for a lot of people. Absolutely, man. We're coming towards the end of the t- conversation, Kerry. So just a couple of final things before we wrap up. Have you a career highlight or something that you are the most proud of from what you've done to date? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, this is gonna be sappy, but the most proud I am is that the day I just, okay, so to backtrack, the day I decided I was gonna teach English in South Korea, that changed my life in a big way because I'd never lived in Asia and never taught. And so by making that decision, it started this new path of teaching, which I never thought I wanted to do or wanted to pursue. When I got my teaching degree, I went to an international job fair and there's places all over the world. And at this job fair, there, I, I thought to myself, I'm gonna teach in Mexico. That was my goal, why? The reality was I wanted to see luchador wrestling and I wanted to live in Mexico in a place I could see that all the time, Mexico yeah, City, sure. right? But there was a school called the Canadian International School and they're promoting Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh City. And I remember going there and seeing their booth. There's booths for each school. And I ended up kind of going to that place and to their booth and saying, you know, I'd love to interview with for your school. I, I don't have a lot of experience, but I'd love to even just be interviewed. And they said, all of our slots are full. And so as soon as that happens, I thought to myself, I'm going to do this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get this job. So I started bugging the, the Vietnamese assistant who had flown over with the administration. And I just kept saying, like, hey, if there's any open slots for an interview, please, please, please. And eventually I got my slot. 
I did the interview, I was terrible. But the, the principal at the time said, listen, we're gonna give you a job, kind of like an entry level job. And, and I realized in that moment, uh, I'm, I'm about to go live in Vietnam. I went there thinking I'm gonna move to Mexico and now I'm moving to Vietnam. And I got, get to Vietnam and in doing so, I ended up meeting my now wife, Bernadette. And it's so weird because I'm so, she's the greatest. But I was like this close and I'm just holding up the tiniest, of like a centimeter, right? Yeah. Away from giving up. When they said there's no slots, what I rightfully should have done is moved on and gone to the other 40 schools that were there and actually got a slot. But I just, I was so diligent on getting interviewed with them. And in doing so, I ended up getting the job and then meeting her. And now I'm back here and we live together and she's wonderful. But I, I'm so glad. I'm so glad they didn't have a slot. I'm so glad I was stubborn because there must have been something that was telling me that, that or fate, whatever it yeah, may be, yeah. that was leading me towards this choice that would lead me to meeting her. And it's weird for me to think because I remember leaving their booth and they said there's no slots and I just was going to move on. And then something told me, no, just keep going for it, keep going it. for it, right? Be, be annoying about it. And it was my ability to not take rejection, to be ruthless in my, my desire to get at least an interview. And the reward was not the job. The reward is getting to meet my wife. That's fantastic. That's the greatest achievement. Absolutely. And have you got any final messages, any final thoughts that you'd like to leave the listeners with? We've discussed so much in this conversation, so it's hard to maybe narrow down a specific message, but now that I'm giving you the chance, you got one final thing? I mean, the podcast is called Comeback. I guess I'll say um, fall flat in your face often, come back. Fall flat in your face, come back. People will tease you. People might not like you. People might have preconceived notions about you, or maybe they actually have a good understanding of who you are and may not like you because of that. Come back. Yeah, it's a good thing to be ruthless or at least unstoppable and always know that tomorrow can be your comeback. Right now can be your comeback. Right now could also be your downfall. All right, come back. Comeback anyway. It's all good. Doing it. The comeback is the setback. Yeah. Before we wrap up, do you want to do Vietnam quick fire questions? A sure. new theme? Let's go for it. Number one, if you could change one thing about Vietnam, what would it be? Air pollution. That's what most people say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is what I would say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Number two, if you could live somewhere else in Vietnam rather than Saigon, where would it be and why? Mm. I recently went to Condau, an island, uh, and yes. I would go there. It's sensational. It's, I know that for some locals they say it's haunted, and that, but, but for me it's, it's Andy Dufresne in the Shawshank Redemption. Right, yeah, yeah. That's the beaches there. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, where is everyone? This is just my beach. Yeah. Condau. And the final one, I think I might know the answer, but I was still ask. If you could take one famous person, mm or celebrity figure and bring them to Saigon for a day, who are you choosing and what are you doing with them? Oh my, that's a very good question. 
I mean, it, w- it wouldn't surprisingly, it wouldn't be Tom. Yeah, that was what I thought. Right? No, no, yeah. it's it sounds. Um, okay, what? Well, who would I bring, and what would I do with them? It's gonna come to me. I know. Barack Obama and I just walk the streets with him and just see how all the people would be like, "Oh my yeah, gosh." Yeah. I'm not even the biggest fan of Barack Obama because I don't know much about Barack Obama. I have nothing against Barack Obama, but I remember when he came here last time, it was a big deal. I can't even imagine what it would be like to walk the streets of Ho Chi Minh City, of Saigon, with Barack Obama. It would be wild. It just to insane. see. It's like it's like people just flocking towards you. Yeah. That'd Obama, just walk down Walking Street and just go, let's go. And see where it goes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kerry, really enjoyed this. Thank you very much and all the very best for your future projects. To you as well. It's been an honor.